Good morning, Anuj. It's a bit loud. It's so good to be with you this morning. We've uh, been looking forward to this, and it's a great privilege. Uh, at Bethany, we really guard our pulpit, and I know it's the same thing here, and so I do understand this is a great privilege and honor, and so I thank you for this. Thank you for Clinton and the elders and the leadership for giving me this opportunity to spend this time with you this morning, and I trust that we will be encouraged as we look at God's Word together. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Mark chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 26 to 29. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 to 29. Uh, as Clint mentioned earlier, um, he's been gracious enough to let me g- be given a slot in his series on the parables. And so we're back in the parables this morning, and we will be considering a parable that falls in the, within that category of parables that relates to the growth of the kingdom. And the parable we're looking at this morning is one that's been rightly called the parable of the seed growing. But before we jump into our text and read our text, uh, let's consider a few things about its context. Uh, This is the only parable that uh, we found in Mark. Mark's the only uh, gospel writer that records this parable. And therefore, we especially need to take note of the context of it to understand why Mark alone records this parable for us. Uh, You'll see, firstly, that Mark starts his chapter, uh, chapter 4, with the parable of the sower, verses 1 to 20. And, And when we speak about the growth of the kingdom, we, in a sense, need to go back to this parable. Because the parable of the sower tells us how the kingdom grows. The kingdom of God grows as the word of God becomes imparted and rooted in the heart of man. Uh, you remember that uh, Jesus spoke of four different soils representing four different hearts. The first three are unfruitful and barren hearts, but the last one is fruitful. It's soft. It receives the word and bears a harvest 30, 60, 100 fold even. And so Mark, uh, I believe, gives us this particular parable that we're going to look at this morning to describe something of how that harvest grows. But then secondly, right after the parable of the sower, Jesus gives this picture of a lamp placed under a basket. Uh, You see that in verse 21 to 25. Now, some people take that as a picture of world evangelism, that we must share the word that we've received and not hide it. Uh, Others, perhaps more correctly, I think, point that out that it's referring to the coming judgment, that what we have uh, sown in our hearts will be revealed. Now, whichever way you interpret that particular uh, passage, the stress there is upon our responsibility. Uh, That's why Jesus says in verse 24, pay careful attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And so the emphasis there is upon our responsibility. And it's at that particular point that Mark records this parable for us. It's after telling us that the kingdom of God grows through the word of God, and after telling us that we are responsible for how we hear and use that word, after that he tells us, and he introduces this parable to explain how that seed grows and balances how that seed grows with our responsibility, with God's work in growing that seed. And hopefully that becomes clearer as we look at the text and walk through it this morning. But but just by way of introduction, let's read the passage. uh, And then again, I want to pray for us. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 to 29. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces By itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. 
But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. When you so find the reading of God's word, may you reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray together. Our great and glorious God, Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've just read your word, we plead with you this morning that you, you would, by your spirit, open up your word to us. That we would not just read and hear your word, but that we would understand your word. And that our hearts would receive your word and produce a 30, 60, 100 fold harvest. Dear Lord, we come before you and we plead with you to meet with us, to lead and guide us so that we understand your word. And dear Lord, so that we would respond in ways that please you and honor you. We come recognizing, dear Lord, that we are frail and weak and sinful. Our minds and our hearts veer away into the things of this world so often. And we plead, dear Lord, that you would fix our hearts, our eyes firmly upon you this morning. That you would open our hearts to receive the word. That you would move and lift our hands in worship to you this morning. And dear Lord, in response, you would move our feet that, that we would walk in obedience to you. Dear Lord, you have said in your word that if we trust in you with all our heart and do not lean in our own understanding and acknowledge you in all our ways, that you will make the way smooth before us. And we pray even this morning that we would trust in you this morning and that you would lead our way to understand your word. You've also said that if we trust in you, we will be like Mount Zion that is unmoved and unfazed. We pray, dear Lord, that this morning our heart and our, our, our lives would be committed again and again to your hands knowing that you are sovereign, you are in control. You are the glorious Lord of lords and King of kings. You are the one who has saved us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have made us your own. You have forgiven us, redeemed us, saved us for yourself. And we come this morning to praise and adore you. Oh, dear Lord, fill our hearts with joy even now, we pray. Lead and guide me in my weakness and lead and guide all of us so that we would see wondrous things of you in your word. We plead this in the name above every other name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If we look at our world, and if we look at the state of the church, there are many things to discourage us. If we look at the state of the world and the church, it's easy to think that we're just wasting our time and it's all hopeless. If we look at global Christianity, we see that in the West, secularism is rising. Secular philosophies are redefining what it means to be human, what it means to be male, female. We see in Africa, Islam is rising. If we look at global Christianity, it seems as if Christianity is declining. If we look at evangelicalism even, it seems that we are more and more divided. We are polarized, we are breaking up into factions, we, are, we uh, despise one another at times, there's suspicion, there's distrust. If we look at e evangelicalism, it seems as if the cause of Christ has been damaged. Even if we look at Christian leadership, we see, fall, we, we see example of, after example of, of men falling into sin. Whether it's pastors who have committed adultery and disqualified themselves whether it's uh, famous preachers and authors who have uh, turned away from the truth and apostatized, whether it's popular figures who have committed serious sinful abuse in the church. 
If we look at Christian leadership, it seems as if the name of Christ has been disgraced. If we look even in the church in our land, we see that false teachers are abounding. The prosperity gospel is causing untold damage to the church. If we look at the church in our land, it seems as if the church is diseased. If we look at our churches even, within our churches, we see people who are uninterested in the things of God. Their love has grown cold. They have no time for God. If we look at our churches, it seems that Christians are in a state of, of decay. See, if we see all of this and understand the state of the church, it's very easy to become discouraged. It's very easy to think that everything is hopeless and we're just wasting our time. But beloved, praise be to God for a parable like this. Praise be to God for a parable like this, because this parable teaches us that God is growing His kingdom. God is extending His rule and reign everywhere. God is still imparting new life to dead hearts. Regardless of what we see, and regardless of what we fail to understand, this parable assures us that God is growing His kingdom. This parable reminds us of Jesus' promise in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, despite what we see or don't see, this parable encourages us with the fact that the kingdom of God is growing. But not only does this parable encourage us, it surprises us. It's meant to surprise us. Did you see how Jesus starts in verse 26? The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. The kingdom of God isn't compared to a vast, mighty army marching towards victory. It isn't compared to a great battle where valiant warriors fight tooth and nail for victory. It isn't compared to a grand and royal ceremony where a victorious king is paraded before his servants. No, the kingdom of God is compared to seed that a farmer sows. One commentator said this way, a more banal comparison could not be imagined. The kingdom should be likened to something grand and glorious, to shimmering mountain peaks, crimson sunsets, the opulence of potentates, the lusty glory of warriors. But Jesus likens it to seeds. See, this is surprising because this parable teaches us that the kingdom of God grows through insignificant and unexpected means. And in a sense, this parable reflects the ministry of Jesus, doesn't it? Contrary to what the Jews expected, the Christ didn't come arriving with military might. He didn't come with seeking political power. No, the Christ came as a carpenter from Nazareth. He came as one who is a servant, who didn't come to be served. He came caring more for the weak and the despised and the downcast than for the mighty and the popular and the righteous. Because he came to, to give his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for many. And he came to make the cross his throne. 
across a throne upon which he is mocked and ridiculed and despised, a cross upon which he bleeds and, and, is, and suffers and, and dies. The Messiah. See, at the cross, it might seem that Jesus is defeated. At the cross, it might seem that there is many reasons to be discouraged, that things are hopeless. But praise be to God, three days later, this Jesus is by the power of God raised from the dead, vindicated as the Messiah. Three days later, He conquers sin, Satan, and death. He, he purchases us our full and final redemption. He makes us God's people. He secures our justification. And He is raised to, to glory, ascended to the right hand of power where He reigns. See, Jesus establishes His redemptive rule and reign as King through insignificant means and unexpected ways. And this King, who, is, who suffered and died, grows His kingdom also through insignificant means and unexpected ways. He grows His kingdom not by military might, not by political power, but by sending out ordinary men and women like you and me, not carrying a sword, but carrying a story. The, the, the message of Christ and Him crucified, the word of the cross, which to the watching world is folly because they're perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, this parable reflects something of, of Jesus' ministry. He is redemptive rule and reign. Namely, that God grows His insurmountable kingdom through insignificant means carried about by his infinite power. Now that leads me to consider what this parable is about. This parable highlights both the insignificant means that God decides to use and his infinite power. And you can see those two things in the structure of this parable. You'll notice there are four verses, and we can see a particular structure. So in verse 26, we see the activity of the man. And what's the man doing? Well, he's sowing the seed. Then in verse 27, we see the activity of the seed. And what's the seed doing? It's growing. In 28, we see the activity of the ground. And what's the ground doing? Also growing the seed. And in verse 29, we see again the activity of the man. And what's he doing now? Well, he's reaping. And so there is, if it makes sense, an A, B, B, A structure there, which essentially highlights two focal points, two essential truths. The activity of the sower at the start and the end of the parable and the activity of the sovereign God at the heart of the parable who, who causes the seed to grow that is in the ground. See, this parable highlights two points for us that reveal two truths for us that we need to understand and, and that needs to undergird our, our involvement and understanding of the kingdom of God. And those two truths are simply the sovereignty of God on the one hand and the responsibility of man on the other. And so I want us to consider those two things this morning. Let's consider firstly kingdom growth and God's sovereignty. Kingdom growth and God's sovereignty. The first and most fundamental lesson of this parable is that God, by His sovereign hand, grows His kingdom. Uh, the picture we're given here of seed growing and sprouting and, and the ground producing harvest are all pointers to God's sovereign providence as He has His hand involved in creation. 
For example, in Psalm 104, we see that God is the one who causes the grass to, and plants to grow. God is the, the one who brings forth food from the earth. God is the one who sends forth the rains that waters the ground and the plants. See, creation and its sustenance are all the mighty and wise works of God. And see, just as God sovereignly and providentially grows and governs His creation, so too does He sovereignly and providentially govern His kingdom. Now, there are at least two things we need to note about how God sovereignly grows His kingdom. The first is this. It is God's Word that brings life. It is God's Word that brings life. Verse 27, He says, He, the sower, sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He, the sower, knows not how. See, quite apart from the activity of the sower and the knowledge of the sower, the seed, by God's sovereign grace, grows. And we know that the seed in these parables represent the, the Word of God in general, and particularly the Gospel. See, to the eye, a seed seems small and insignificant, yet it has the amazing potential for life. From the seed comes a shoot, and then a root is formed, and, and then a stem, and then on that stem comes leaves and branches and eventually fruit. Seen a small little seed, there is amazing potential for life. And yet, how much more so is that not true of the Word of God? Yes, it seems insignificant. Yes, it seems small and foolish to this world. Yet the Word has the potential to bring new life that flourishes and abounds in eternal life. Isn't that what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1.23? He says, you have been born again. That is, once you were dead in your sins, once you were dead and enslaved to sin, but now you have been born again to new life. Through what? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and abiding Word of God. See, God sovereignly grows His kingdom, and He does so by bringing life through His living and abiding Word. His word, when sown in what was once dead and barren, has the power and the potency to bring life and bear fruit. Now, we have an example of this in perhaps one of the greatest theologians in church history, Augustine. Some of you would know about his conversion. Augustine was a great man, but also a great sinner. Uh, he gave himself to, to, to ungodly lifestyles, and, and God brought him to a point of despair because of his sin. At one particular day, he was in his garden crying and weeping because of his sin. And he heard a child next door, hymning out, Tolidge, Tolidge, take up and read, take up and read. And he went to the scriptures. He picked up uh, one verse, Romans 13, 13. And once at that moment, he was saved. He was converted. Uh, Augustine said of that incident, he said, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly at that sentence, as that sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty. And all the gloom of doubt vanished. See, the kingdom of God grows as the word of God takes root in the heart of man. See, it is God's word that brings life. I consider what Isaiah 55 verse 10 and 11 says. For as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that for which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 
See, God's word comes from his mouth and it is powerful. It has the powerful potency to bring life. Michael Wharton said this, he said, God's word does not merely impart information, it actually creates life. It's not only descriptive, but effective. God speaking is God acting. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God's word is powerful? Do you believe that and have confidence that God's word can do God's work? Do you believe that as you share God's word to your children, to your family, to your colleagues, that it's able to bring life? Do you believe this? Sometimes, let's be honest, we, we think the word of God is a plastic sword that's nice to play with, but it doesn't do anything. Yet the truth is, Hebrews 4.12 tells us, it is the word of God, it is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to pierce the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Beloved, we need to recognize that God grows his kingdom in us and in others and in this world as the word goes out, because it is the word that imparts life. See, God gives life through his word. But the second thing we need to note from uh, God's sovereignty in kingdom growth is that God's work, it is God's work to grow that life. It is God's work to grow that life. Look at, look at verse 20, 28. The earth produces by itself first the blade and then the ear and then the full grain in the ear. Now it's interesting in that in the Greek there, that word by itself is automatic. We get the word automatic from it, right? And the idea is that the, the, the earth automatically brings forth growth from the seed. And Jesus' point is quite clear. It is God who is sovereign who causes the plant and the, the, the plants to grow. And it is the same God who sovereignly causes the seed of the word to grow. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, where, where Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. See, God grows the seed of the word, and he grows it gradually. That's the second thing I want you to see there, part of that. Uh, when, when, when seed is sown, it, it takes time to germinate. It doesn't come out immediately. Even in Augustine, although his conversion was immediate and rapid, he, his growth in godliness and grace was gradual. He wasn't a pagan one minute and then a mature Christian the next. No, no, the, the life imparted into his heart had to grow gradually. And see, it is God's work to grow that gradually. Now, Jesus mentions three stages of this growth. He says, first the blade and then the ear and then the full grain. And you could argue that that represents something of the kingdom's growth in the heart of man. First, there is initially a simple faith, a faith that justifies but then that grows and matures and, and the process of sanctification grows and that person becomes holier and more set apart. And then finally there is the believer's glorification where they're presented to, to God as mature and upright. But see, the point is, from beginning to start, God gives the growth. From our justification, our sanctification, glorification, it is God's work. Philippians 1.6 he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Even Hebrews says that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Now, I, I mention that because sometimes it's very easy to be discouraged. Discouraged by the lack of growth we see sometimes. Perhaps in our own hearts or in the hearts of our family or, or in the church or our children. 
and we get discouraged. We, we don't see the fruit. We don't see the change. We don't see the progress. And we can do two of, one of two things. We can either give up and just say, well, it's a lost cause, or we try and fake it, right? We, we kind of manipulate the system and, and force something to happen. Yet we, we need to recognize that, that God and, and God alone gives the growth. He is sovereign, and it is his sovereign hand who, who grows his, his kingdom. He is the efficient cause behind its growth. It is his word that has the potential for life, and it is his work to grow that word. And therefore, the best we can do is depend on him, to look to him, to, to rest and rely upon him to do the work, to have our faith in the sovereign God who is growing his kingdom. Now, you might know this famous quote from Luther. He was asked about the Protestant Reformation and his involvement in it. And he said, I simply taught and preached and, and wrote on the word of God. Otherwise, I did nothing. While I slept or drank, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Well, it's the word through God. And so we need to recognize that God grows his kingdom, and therefore we need to depend on him. We need to rely upon the sovereign God who has promised to grow his kingdom. So that's the first point I want us to consider, uh, kingdom growth and God's sovereignty. It is his word that gives life, and it is his work to grow that life. But if we leave our exposition just there, we would misinterpret this parable, because there's a second point that is made in this parable that balances that out. And that is kingdom growth and man's responsibility. So although God is the efficient cause behind kingdom growth, God has also ordained the means through which he grows his kingdom. And the surprising thing is, he uses means like me and you. We may not and cannot build the kingdom, but we are definitely called to kingdom work. Sometimes we as Christians fail to get that. Uh, you might also know of the story of William Carey, that famous uh, missionary pioneer. And uh, there's a story told of when he was presenting a paper to a particular association meeting. And he was arguing for greater missionary zeal. He, he wanted them to, to be more zealous for the gospel. And an elderly gentleman came and said, young man, sit down. Uh, if God wanted to save the heathen, he would never, he would neither use me, need me or you. And see, that kind of sentimentality betrays what we see here. That God ordains both the ends and the means. And he has given us, not to sit back and twiddle our thumbs and play church, but he's called us to, to kingdom work, to be used of him. He has saved us, not to sit back, but to be sent and to proclaim the good news, to serve our king. And there are at least two things, again, we need to note about man's responsibility in the growth of God's kingdom. Firstly, it is our duty to sow the seed. Look at verse 26. The, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. For the kingdom of God to grow, seed needs to be sown. The ground cannot produce of itself the harvest. It needs that seed. As J.C. Ralph put, out so many years, put it so many years ago, uh, the ground naturally doesn't produce weed, uh, wheat, it produces weed, if that makes sense. Not weeds, but weed. And so it is with our hearts. Our hearts don't naturally gravitate towards God. They don't naturally uh, want the things of God. They're naturally dead to God. They're rebellious against God. Our hearts do not naturally produce faith and obedience. 
And therefore, we need the seed of the Word inspired by the Spirit and applied by the Spirit to shatter those, those dead hearts. To open up the ground, to, to put the seed there and to cause life to grow. And isn't that what Paul says in Romans 10? He says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. Earlier he says in verse 14 and 15, how will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach without, without, unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So, beloved, we have the beautiful responsibility to be beautiful feet. We have the responsibility to carry the good news of the word, the gospel to this world. And if God brings life through his word, then his word needs to saturate all we do. So that people would hear and, and believe and repent and turn to serve this king. Dear believer, if you have heard the word, you have the responsibility to preach the word. Do you remember that account in Acts chapter 4 as John and Peter are preaching the good news of Christ and uh, the religious leaders capture them and tell them, do not preach this message of Christ. Do you remember how they responded? We cannot but preach of what we've seen and heard. Is that our response? Have we tasted and seen something of the goodness of God and now therefore we cannot keep quiet? That should be our desire. It is our duty to sow the seed of the word. But secondly, it is our delight to reap the harvest. Verse 29. It is our delight to reap the harvest. Verse 29 says, But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Now, let me just mention there's some uh, difference of opinion. Most people think that this is a reference to Jesus' second coming uh, and his coming judgment. Uh, the image of the sickle and the harvest is often a picture of judgment. You see that in Joel 3.13. And it may be alluded to here. But I must admit, I, must admit, I, I disagree with that interpretation. And the reason is quite simple. Uh, the he in verse 29 who reaps is the same he who sows the seed in verse 26. And it is the same he who does not know how the seed sprouts and grows in verse 27. Therefore, if Jesus is the person reaping in verse 29, then it also means by implication that Jesus doesn't know how the seed grows in verse 27, which is strange considering the fact that he's the one growing his kingdom. Now, the most natural way to, to interpret this verse is to say that it refers and first and foremost to man's responsibility to the seed after that seed has produced the harvest. Think of it this way. When a farmer sows the seed and the seed flourishes and grows and produces a large crop, does the farmer just sit back and wait and, and wait for that crop to wither and die? No, no, he, he, he waits patiently and he, he waits for the right time. And when that time comes, he, he immediately gets to work. And he does it with great enjoyment and excitement because he reaps that harvest for the purpose for which it is intended. Well, beloved, it's the same for us. If we preach the gospel and share the word and someone by God's grace is saved and believes upon Christ and serves the king and is born again, do we sit back and wait and watch him to wither away and die? No, God forbid. 
No, we, we make disciples, right? We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Spirit. We, we teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. We make disciples. We make them part of the church. We grow them. Spurgeon has, Spurgeon has said this, to create life is God's work. To cherish that life is our work. And so the Word of God is sent, we need to understand, is sent to, to bring life, but the Word of God is also given to nourish that life. And we're called to make disciples. We see something of this in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, with the purpose of God's Word. He says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for proof and for correction and for the training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, how does that happen? How does a man or a woman become more complete in Christ and in righteousness? Only as the Word of God is applied through preaching, through sharing, through teaching, through discipleship. This happens as we disciple one another and apply the Word to one another and build up one another in our most holy faith. See, our role in God's kingdom-building work is to make disciples, disciples who follow Christ and who yield their lives to their King and to mature one another in the church. This is our responsibility. And what a responsibility. God has given us the, the joy and the delight to be part of what He is doing in this world. If I can share just very quickly, very early on in my ministry, there was one moment where I realized this is what I want to do. I was visiting a, 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 one of the seniors in our church, and uh, she'd been a Christian for many years, 60, 70 plus years, and and she was very discouraged, very discouraged. And, and she was wanting to give up. And, and all I did was just ask her, tell me how God saved you. Tell me what God has done. And she probably took half an hour to 40 minutes and explained all that God did for her. And I said almost nothing. I think I said 10 words. I don't know. But I left there encouraged. And she left there praising God. Because she saw that God is still busy. God is still working. He's been faithful. He will be faithful. And that just reminds me, what a pleasure, what a joy to be involved in some small way to encourage another, to, to, grow up one, to grow someone else up in their faith, to add some input into someone else. And this is our delight, beloved. This is our calling. This is our joy to be involved in one another's lives. See, this is the great calling that should shape all that we do. As, as a church that ministers to one another, this should be our goal. As we parent our children, this should be our goal. As we are ambassadors for Christ in the world, this should be our goal. To raise up men and women in Christ. We have a duty and a delight to serve this king. Now I'm convinced these two things, the, the, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, are absolutely essential if we're going to understand what it means for God to grow his kingdom. And holding both of these truths together... Uh, proves essential in this. On the one hand, God's sovereignty confronts our pride. See, when we neglect God's sovereignty, we, we think we can do it ourselves. We, we put our faith and our trust in our programs, in our charisma, in our wisdom, in our plans, in our abilities. Or on the other side, when we neglect God's sovereignty, we get discouraged. We think, oh, how can I do this? How can I do this great task? And we've neglected God. See, God's sovereignty confronts our pride, and this parable teaches us that God is building His kingdom, and therefore we need to be humble and depend upon Him. 
But on the other hand, man's responsibility confronts our timidity. And let's be honest, sometimes we get very comfortable and complacent in church. Sometimes we lose sight of the power of God's word and we lose confidence in its ability to save. And therefore we become scared to share the word. We become silent when we should be speaking. And see, this parable teaches us that God is able to powerfully grow his kingdom using insignificant and unexpected means like you and me. As we take God's word and we are bold, and diligent to serve our King in this work. And so, beloved church, Jesus is calling us in this parable to be a humble people, but a bold people. To be a people who are dependent upon Him, but a people who are diligent. But what does that look like? So let me close by just making three points of application for this morning. Uh, This parable should have this effect on us, I think. It should cause us to work. It should cause us to work. We are called to the work of of kingdom work. Uh, Paul says in Philipp, uh, Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the work that we are called to is to sow the seed. As we parent our children, we need to sow the seed. As we counsel one another formally, informally, we need to sow the seed. As we engage those around us, family, members, colleagues, friends, we need to sow the seed. As we confront the challenges and the discouragements of this life, we need to sow the seed. See, whatever we do and wherever we go, we need to sow the seed. Why? Because it is God's word that gives life. Moved by His Spirit that causes life to to flourish in dead hearts. His word is powerfully potent to bring to life dead hearts and we have the duty and the light to carry that word. But secondly, that parable, this parable not only calls us to work, but to, to wait. We need to recognize where our responsibility starts and ends. And when we have diligently sowed the word, sowed the seed of the word, we need to, like the farmer, wait. And wait upon God. Uh, Psalm, we need to have the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 130 verse 5 where he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Now a good farmer, uh, when he waits, when he sows the seed and he, he waits back, he isn't inactive though, is he? He still has other uh, responsibilities, other duties to, to get to. And so do we. We have the duty of, of prayer. We need to pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would grow the seed we've sown, that, we would, that He would accomplish His purposes, that He would grow His kingdom. I mentioned earlier Augustine's conversion. It was quick and rapid when the Word of God took hold of his heart. Yet we need to remember that his conversion was preceded by year upon year upon year of his mother's prayers. I'm a testimony to that. I think I'm saved partly because of God's grace and partly because of the prayers of a mother. And I think some of you are even praying for your children. And we need to be a people of prayer. See, there is power in prayer. And therefore, we need to pray for our children, pray for one another, pray for our colleagues, friends, family. You pray through those challenges. We need to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We need to be a people who wait upon God in prayer. But thirdly, I think this parable causes not just to work and wait, but also worship. You might be asking, where do you get worship from this? Uh, two ways. Two, two ways it's implied. The first 
is seen in that reference to Joel 3.13. I mentioned that earlier. Although I don't think that's the main point of verse 29, I think there is an illusion there. And see, the illusion there is that Christ is coming again, and He's coming to, to judge the living and the dead. And we need to be reminded that our King is coming back. He's returning. And we need to give ourselves to Him as living sacrifices that are found faithful. When He returns, will He find us faithful? Will He find faithfulness? Will He find us as busy at work for Him? Will He say to us, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will He say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness? See, the return of Christ motivates our worship and our service because He holds us accountable. That's the whole point of that image of the lamp under the basket. What will we do with the word we receive? But there's another way that this parable points us to worship. We need to remember that part of the Old Testament worship was the sacrifice of the first fruits of the harvest to God. See, when God saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt, He brought them to the promised land and He told them to, to give the first fruits of the harvest to Him as worship. Not as a means to save themselves, but as a means to, to praise and adore Him and, and give thanks to all that He's done. Beloved, we have the exact same motive. Realize you are either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. You're either enslaved to sin or you're alive to God. And if you have believed upon Jesus, if you have placed your faith and your trust in this king, then he has redeemed you from slavery as well. He has, he has purchased you by his precious blood to be his people. And he has transferred you from a kingdom of darkness to his kingdom of light. And if you haven't done that, if you haven't placed your faith in him, you are still in darkness. You're still in sin. You're still dead in your trespasses. But if you have, you have the great joy of serving this king, to worship him out of thanksgiving for all that he's done for you. And therefore, we serve and, and give ourselves to this kingdom work because this king has saved us. This king has brought life to our hearts. And therefore, we give our hearts to him out of worship and adoration. See, if we look to this world, there is much to be discouraged by. Yet what a parable like this teaches us is to keep our heads up and our eyes upon our King. To walk boldly and diligently as we sow the seed of the Word. To wait humbly and dependently on Him as we pray for the harvest. And to worship Him as one who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Yes, this might seem insignificant in comparison to the state of the church and the worries in this world. Yet it is through these insignificant means carried about by God's infinite power that God builds His insurmountable kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity that we have to have Your Word to see and understand something of what you desire of us. We do recognize, dear Lord, that your word is actually quite abundantly clear of what you desire of us. Yet our hearts and our minds are so often handicapped by our sin and our flesh, and therefore we fail to do what you desire of us and to be used of you in a way that pleases you. 
we pray that you'd forgive us. We pray that you'd have mercy upon us. We pray that you'd stir within us a greater zeal for your kingdom as we depend upon your sovereign hand as you are doing your work in this world. But also help us to be bold, to have confidence in your word, to do your work. We pray to you, Lord, that wherever we go, outside into this world, in this church, in our families, we pray that we'd be men and women and children who make much of the word of God, who preach much about the Jesus of our salvation. And dear Lord, that you would see fit to give us the joy of seeing a great harvest. Oh dear Lord, may this church see and experience something of your grace in this way. May you save those who would be saved and bring them to this place, that they would come to worship you and adore you and praise you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh dear Lord, you have made us your ambassadors in this world. You have told us to represent you. Help us to not neglect this great calling. Help us to rejoice in it, to be glad that we are your people. We pray that you bless us and encourage us uh, this morning and make your face shine upon us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.